Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. It's our hope that the next few moments lead you closer to Jesus, encourage you to grow, and equip you to exist for those not yet here. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that we can bring you fresh content every week as you continue in your walk with Christ. Anyway, we're in week four of our sermon series over the summer that we're calling Axiom. Axiom. So an axiom is a cool sounding word. What does it mean, right? It's just, it's a truth that's unchanging and it's unwavering. It's something that we can agree on uh, that is factual. It's something you can base and build your life on. And so over these 10 weeks of summer, we're going to talk about different axioms that come out of the Bible because we want to look at uh, this verse from John chapter 10. Jesus says this. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Right? So we all want full, meaningful, impactful lives. And Jesus pretty much tells it exactly, tells us how to do that throughout the Bible, throughout his time on earth. And so if you've missed any of the previous sermons, uh, you can go back, you can watch them on YouTube, you can listen to them on your whatever you listen to podcasts on. Uh, I recommend it because Steve has been, been killing it this, this far. Um, but you don't have to. Like, you're not going to be out of place. This, these 10 weeks are designed to where if it's your first time, if you're going on a vacation and you come back, if you're coming and visiting with a friend, you're not going to feel out of place. You're not going to feel like you're missing anything. Uh, you're going to have everything you need. And so today is its own thing. Today, I'm excited to talk about what we get to talk about today because it's something that has impacted my life, uh, my job, my family, my leadership, my, just everything about me in a really big way. So I, uh, I serve on the worship team. So I get to do this, talk to you guys a couple times a year. Other than that, I'm serving on the worship team. And so this is something that we really harp on uh, with the worship team. This is something that I harp on at my house. Uh, it's something that has made my life significantly better and made my life significantly harder, depending on how I'm dealing with it, right? So the, what we're talking about today, axiom number four, is this. How you do the small things means everything. How you handle the insignificant details of your life means everything. You've heard this said a thousand different ways from all of your favorite YouTubers and, you know, social media people and authors and whatever else, right? How you do one thing is how you do everything, uh, major in the minors, right? Uh, whatever, however else you've heard it, right? And, and it's repeated so often because it's so true. This is something that you can base and build your life on is this truth. Because how you do the small things and the insignificant things and the things that you know you should do, but you don't want to do it and nobody would know if you didn't do it, how you handle the situations where you know you shouldn't do it, but you know nobody will know if you do it and you want to do it anyway, how you handle those things that you feel like are unimportant or you feel like they're beneath you, how you deal with those things says a lot about you. How you handle those things is going to determine the type of life that you're going to live. Whether you live life to the fullest, like Jesus wants us to, or you live life to the fullish, like most of us will, will tend to do on our own. This is what Jesus says about it in the book of Luke, in chapter 16. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So we want much, right? We want the, uh, we want the, the, the tight-knit family with zero drama at any of the family functions. That's a lot. That's a big ask. 
We want much. We want the forever home, house, estate, commune, whatever it is, right? We want to live there. We want cars that aren't rusting out from the bottom up because we live in Pennsylvania. We want whatever it is, right? We want the next job. We want the whatever it is. Like we want much out of life, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's natural. God wants us to live life to the fullest. But we want much, but how do we treat what we think of as little? Because that's going to determine a lot of things in our life. Uh, Steve preached about the same thing a few years ago, and he said something I thought was really cool. He said, you can't experience the significant things if you're not excellent at the simple things. And so this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time breaking down this concept a little bit because I want us to understand how important this is and impactful this is going to be on your life as a whole. And so we're talking about this today, how you handle the small things. It's going to do some different things in your life. Right, and the first is this, how you handle the small things defines you. How you handle the insignificant things in your life is who you really are. It tells you what kind of person you are. It tells you your character, right? It's integrity. It's who you are when nobody is watching. What you do when there's nothing on the line, when you know you won't get caught and you know you won't get credit, it's the foundation on which your character is built. Because here's the thing, we will often, we will be recognized by the big things. We're recognized by other people in the big things, the big opportunities at work, the big, you know, buying a house, whatever it is. And, And so in those big things, when the lights are on, the eyes are on us, there's something to gain or to lose, that's where we get recognized by other people. And in that moment, which will come for everybody, you don't know what it's going to look like in, in, in your life. You could have to stand on the stage and talk to a bunch of people. Uh, you could maybe, you know, you're, you're a teacher and you're going to, you know, talk about something in class that, that's super, super important. Maybe you're at work and you're going to give a presentation to, you know, the, the top three people in your whole company and whatever it is. At some point in your life, you will have a big moment, a moment of much. And in that moment, if your character is built up and you have a strong foundation of integrity, your character will carry you through that moment. Your character is going to carry you through that situation. But if you don't have that depth of character, if you don't have that integrity, if you don't deal with the small things in your life well, you're either going to crash and burn, which would suck, or you're going to have to fake it till you make it. And that's not always wrong, but if you're trying to get by on big moments without doing the work, in the small details of your life, you're, it's not going to work out well for you. Jesus actually has something to say about that. In the book of Mark, he says this. He says, as, Jesus taught, or as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So these guys are walking around in all the big moments, reveling in the respect and the honor and the glory of their position, but their character doesn't back any of that up. And so I want to help you understand a couple of these things. So when it says um, teachers of the law, watch out for the teachers of the law. He's not talking about law school professors or lawyers or any of that. Uh, He's talking about hoity-toity religious leaders who tell you how you're supposed to live, but they often they don't live that way. And so Jesus spent a lot of his time on earth coming against 
those type of people, the religious leaders, the know-it-alls, whatever else, coming against them, creating friction there, kind of pointing out their hypocrisy. And this is an example of him doing just that. He's saying that these people love those big things. They ride from big moment to big moment. And they use, instead of building their life in such a way where they're worthy of respect and honor, they use their position and they use the name of God to leverage their way to kind of cheat out of the work and just sit in those high places without really earning it. And Jesus, obviously, is is a little bit frustrated by that. But how do we apply that to our lives? Because we're not religious leaders. We're not teachers of the law. So how does that apply to to us and how we are? And I think it's just this. It's really simple. Don't fake it. Be it. Don't fake it. Be it. If you want to be that type of person who's worthy of respect, who people can look up to, then be that type of person. Put in the work and become that individual, right? Don't, don't assume that anybody owes you anything at work because of your title or at you know, home because of your position at work or whatever it is, right? Nobody owes you anything. Nothing you've done has earned you anything right now. Put in the work to be that person that you want to be. And here's the thing. It's very achievable because it's in the, the small details. You don't have to overhaul your whole life and dress different and act different and talk different and all these things. It's in the little details where you become that kind of person. So I'll give you an example. In my life, I am lazy. I'm a straight up lazy dude in my bones, in my core, in my spirit. Just, I'm a lazy person. If it was up to me, I would have gone home from work at the end of the week and I would have turned on Jersey Shore and chilled until now. And then I would have ducked out of the house and come this way, right? Like that's, that's just me. I'm, I'm lazy. Like I'm just not the type that's going to want to go like really do a lot of things. And the fact is, I hate that about myself. Like, I despise that in me because I don't look up to that in other people. I don't respect that in other people. The, the people that I look up to, the men that, that I base, kind of I want to look more like on this side of eternity, those people, they don't do that, right? Those people are, are, are making things better. They're working at their house. They're doing projects. They're making their families' lives better. They're making things better at work. They're doing the work. And they're not lazy. And so I hate that about me. So I've learned I have to attack that. Like I have to come after that because that's not how I want to be defined, right? In those little things, I want to be defined as a hard worker. And so what God has kind of shown me over over the past few years is that it's not about me taking on giant projects or keeping my schedule really full or making sure that my calendar when I open it up is just all colors and no lines and all this stuff going on. Uh, the truth is it, it's very little things that I have to do consistently that keep me in, 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 in the place that I feel like God needs me to be, right? So I need to be early to places. I cannot be late. If you're on time, you're late. If you're early, you're on time. I live by that. My wife has no such conviction. And so <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit of friction here and there, right? But I live that way because I, I know what my tendency is, right? So I want to be on time to everything. Uh, I have to finish Everything that I start, if I start a project, I have to see it through. Like, I have to finish it. I have to finish it because I don't want to. Like, it's way easier. It's funner to start a project, and then when it gets hard and messy and you got to clean it up, let somebody else handle all that, and you just go on to start another mess or project, right? It's a lot easier to do that, but I know for me, I have to see through whatever I'm doing. I got to see it through to the very end with the same enthusiasm that I started it with. Another thing, too, uh, Something that I have to do, whatever I want to do the least, I need to do the most. 
little thing there. What I want to do the least, I need to do the most. Here's an example. My wife and I have a three-month-old boy, and he is breastfeeding. How many of you know uh, that when you have a child who is breastfeeding, you're running a small batch dairy operation out of your home, right? Like, I thought it was just he eats from the source, and we're fine. But it's not the kid. There's, like, pumps involved. There's bags and bottles and, like, all kind of stuff, right? So these pumps, there's different kind of pumps, and every kind of pump has right around a million pieces, small pieces that you have to clean every day, like every, every day. Not like most every day, like every, every day. Every one of these little pieces gets cleaned, and it's with really hot water that hurts your hands if you're a weenie like I am. It's with different size brushes and special soaps, and you can't put it in the sea. You gotta, it's just, it's meticulous, and it's annoying, and I hate it. And the truth is, it would be really easy for me to pretend like I'm busy with something else and let my wife clean the pump thing every day. Because it's her pump, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, so it would be really easy for me to do that. And I honestly, I want to do that with everything inside of me. But I know that I come into work early when I can, right? Coming to work on time. I stay to the end of the day. I bust my butt every moment that I'm in. I work here. So I bust my butt every moment that I'm in this place because I want to be a hard worker. And if I go home from this place and I don't do anything, I let my wife do all the work, cleaning all the dishes, doing all the laundry, doing all the cleaning up around the house, taking care of everything at home, I'm not a hard worker. I'm a good faker. What I do at home when my peers aren't around when nobody is looking, when I'm not on a stage, the way I speak to my wife at home, the way I handle myself there determines who I am. I'm defined by the small details of my life just like you are. So the first thing that it's going to do, it's going to define you. How you handle the small things defines you. The second thing it's going to do is how you handle the small things aligns you. It aligns you. Taking care of the small things in your life makes your life look a lot like Jesus's. Right, this aligns you with the word of God over your life. So I want to real quick, like side Bible lesson real fast. So if you're new to following Jesus, if you're new to reading the Bible and the church and everything, I want to break something down for you. So the Bible is a book. It's made up of 66 books. It's an, I think it's called an anthology. I don't really know. It's a collection of books all in one book, right? And so there's 66 of them total. It's split into two categories. There's the Old Testament in the New Testament, I don't really have time to get into all of that, but one thing I want you to know is in the New Testament, the first four books, they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those four books we call the Gospels. They're the Gospels because those four books tell us the story of Jesus. That's where we see Jesus' life. That's where we read his words that he spoke and we see what he did. And it's amazing. So all of Scripture, the Bible says all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all number of things. It's all important. But those four books tell us about the life of Jesus. And if you want your life to look like Jesus, you should know what Jesus' life looked like. Amen? So in those four Gospels, and I recommend read, read all of them. They're not that long. Like you're going to read the Bible for the rest of your life. You'll, you'll finish it, I promise. So read all of them because they all come from different authors and different perspectives, which is really interesting and really cool. But as you read about the life of Jesus, it can be really easy to get caught up in all the big stuff, right, the miracles, because he's, he's walking on water, he's turning water into wine, he's healing the, the, the sick, he's casting out demons, he's raising the dead from life, or the dead from the dead, back to life. There it is. It's like, that didn't make sense. 
I had to fix it. Like, I couldn't move on from that until I fixed it. There's something inside of me. I think it's called being a literalist. Anyway, we get so focused on all these big things that he did, justly so, because they're meant to tell us things, right? But we could focus on that so much that we can lose sight of the little things that he did, the simple things he took care of that made him so followable, that made him so impactful, and how he made such a difference to the people around him. So I want to look at one of those miracles that he did real quick, and I want to focus on a, a little part of it that, that God, I feel like, kind of made stat. Like I got hung up on this little this line in this story. And so uh, if you're following along in the notes on the app, you can read this passage right now. Otherwise, I'm going to bullet point it for you because it's really long, and we're not going to put it on the screen. Um, but it's just this. Jesus and his disciples, uh, Jesus' disciples, we use that word a lot. They're just 12 dudes that rolled around with Jesus. Um, they helped him make the church, basically. They were, they were his boys. They worked with him. They traveled with him. Uh, they just, they were part of the early church uh, in Jesus building that, right? So Jesus and his disciples, they're preaching. They're, they're teaching to a really giant group of people. Um, it's overwhelming. Uh, there's so many people, they can't even eat, it says. And so Jesus says, hey, we need to cut out. Like, we need to find some rest. Let's come cut across this lake to this really remote place, and we'll rest there. So they cut out, they go across the lake to the remote place. Everybody sees them going that way, and they all run around, and they meet them out in this remote place in the middle of nowhere. So they show up to this place where they're looking for rest. What they find is a giant group of people. The Bible says it's 5,000 men, and that's just the men, not including women and children. So uh, scholars will say it's likely somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people there. So they're looking for rest. They find 20,000 people. And in that moment, Jesus takes pity on them, it says, and he starts to teach them. So he's teaching these people, and the disciples start to get worried about food. It's getting later in the day. They're in the middle of nowhere. There's no food around. He's, they, they come to Jesus. They say, hey, man, you, you probably got to send these people home so they can go and they can eat. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. And they say, with what? And he says, well, what do you have? So they go around, and they see what they can find, and they scrounge up five loaves of bread and two, piece, or two fish. Five loaves of bread, two fish. They bring it back to Jesus and say, this is what we got. And he says, all right. And he takes it and he prays over it. He blesses God with it. And he gives it to, to the disciples to distribute to everybody who's there. And then we'll pick up the verse in, or, uh, this verse in verse 42. We'll pick it up right there. Uh, and this is talking about the people who just got this food that Jesus blessed. It says this, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. So let's focus on the big stuff first. Jesus is, is amid, um, amongst 20,000 people, hungry people. He finds five loaves of bread and two fish, and he feeds them all with it. Now, I, I know people in my life who would eat that themselves and look for more, right? Like, that's not that much food, but he feeds 20,000 people with just that little bit of food after he blesses the Lord with it. And what's more, they didn't just eat. They ate to their heart's content. The Bible says that they ate and were satisfied. It wasn't a snack. It was a meal. What's more than that, the disciples then ran around and picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. They didn't just feed everybody. They fed so many people so much that they couldn't eat everything uh, that was there for them. And on top of all that, Jesus just preached two bomb sermons, which is the whole reason everybody was there in the first place. 
And so there's a lot going on in this story, and it's very preachable. It's the reason that you've probably heard it before right now, if you have. And so uh, for some of you, this is the first time hearing the story. Maybe that's just what you need to hear today, that God is a provider in your life, that God is the God of abundance, he's the God of multiplication, that there's nothing so insignificant that you have, so small, so underwhelming, that he can't use it and multiply it and make it more than enough. The Bible says that our cup will run over with the measure that we pour it out. And so for some of you, that's what you need to hear today. God is a multiplier, he's a provider, you trust him with what you have, you bless him with what you have, and he will turn that back to you uh, to be more than you can actually handle. It's a very preachable story, but the part of it that stuck out to me the most in this past couple weeks was, was this. It was in verse 43, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. So after all those big things, preached a big sermon, they traveled, they preached another big sermon, they distributed all this food, they fed all these people, they did all these big things in front of of everybody. All eyes were on them and they performed and they executed well. They did all the things they were supposed to do. Everybody is fed. Everybody is taught. Everybody is gone. The work is supposed to be over. What do they do? Jesus and his boys walk around and pick up after 20,000 people. That just, that, that stuck with me. Jesus saw it through to the smallest detail. There's no litter laws at this point, right? Leave no trace wasn't a thing. There were no Subarus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Nobody cared about that. The birds would have come and ate it anyway. Like, it wasn't that big of a deal. And there was nobody there to impress. There was nobody there to, to, to you know, get mad at them if they didn't pick up. They just saw what they were doing through to the smallest detail. And so if you want to live life to the fullest, then you should want your life to look like Jesus. And if you want your life to look like Jesus, how you handle the small things is going to be a big determining factor in that. Amen? The third thing that it's going to do, how you handle the small things, if you handle them well, it prepares you. If you handle the small things well, it prepares you. Remember what Luke said uh, in Luke chapter 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. What Jesus is telling us there is if we want God to bless us with more, we need to show him that we are trustworthy with what we have right now. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You want that promotion at, at job, you want at, at work, you want that next job, you want that next opportunity. How are you handling the job you have right now? Because I'll tell you, if you're not the hardest worker in your office and you're asking God to promote you, why would he do that? If you represent him, you represent the body of Christ in everything you do, and you're barely skating by in the job that you do have, why would he move you into something else? Why would he promote you in front of people when you can't even do the bare minimum where you're at right now? Right, this is convicting for me right now. My wife and I are thinking about maybe next year buying a house, and right now we live uh, in an apartment that we love, but it's easy to complain about because everything is easy to complain about when you get used to it, right? And so as we're thinking about and praying that God will make, you know, bring us the right house at the right price point at the right time in the right way and all that kind of stuff, I got to think about how are we treating our apartment right now? Like what we have right now, are we grateful for it? Are we taking care of it? Are we living like this is forever, like this is the best thing we could have ever gotten? Because to this point, it is. You know what I mean? How are we handling what we have right now is going to determine kind of, kind of how we get to what we, what we want next. So I heard a, uh, 
little snippet of a sermon this week. I was, I was clicking through and, and looking at some different things to see how other people are doing their lights and their cameras and stage setups and that kind of stuff. And, and I happened across this guy named Darius, Dr. Darius Daniels. Say that three times fast. And so I'm watching this snippet of one of his sermons, and he said something that was so cool, and it's the reason we're talking about this today. And I honestly, I didn't even want to preach it. I just wanted to, like, show the video on the screen. But that, remember, I'm trying to not be lazy, and so that wasn't, like, the right move. <laughs> I, had to, I had to come up here and talk about it myself. And so uh, what he said was this. He said, you don't do big things trying to do big things. You do big things by doing small things consistently over a period of time. And that gives you the capability to do big things. You do small things consistently over a period of time, and that gives you the capability to do big things. This is what else he says. He says, if you are willing to do the small things like they're big things, then you will hit a season when you can do the big things like they're small things. He says this, then going on. If you're willing to take care of the lion and the bear when nobody is looking, then you'll be able to knock down Goliath when everybody is looking. Now, that one may not make sense to you yet, but it will in a second, I promise. So everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, right? He's a kid. He kills a giant. If you've ever watched sports ever in your life, you've heard something about, oh, a regular David and Goliath story, right? It's the original underdog. And so we all know that story. It, it transcends the Bible. Like it's just in the world right now, right? David and Goliath, you know it. Um, what you don't maybe know about that story is what happens right before David goes and fights Goliath, and it's one of the most impactful parts of the story. And so David goes to the king. He's a child. He goes to the king, Saul, who, who's in charge of the army, and he says, hey, I'm going to go fight this giant for you. Like, I'm going to take care of business. And Saul, like any normal adult, said no, right? Like, you're a kid. That's a giant. I, I don't feel like I need to explain myself, Right? So what David says in response is super powerful, and this is what he says in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 17. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will not or will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So what's he saying? He's a, he, his dad is a shepherd. He owns sheep. David goes and takes care of those sheep. And he's saying that if a lion or a bear comes to take away one of those sheep, he grabs it, fights it, kills it, and he rescues that sheep. And he's saying that I've done those things and God has seen me through it. So this Philistine, this giant has no chance. Like what God has done in me is going to be a problem for this giant. And so I don't know about you. You might be a lot tougher than me. It wouldn't be overly difficult. But I don't really feel like fighting a lion and a bear is like light work. You know what I mean? Like if, if I'm watching some sheep, I don't care who's they, your sheep, my sheep, his sheep, her sheep. I don't care whose they are. If a lion or a bear wants one, they just got one. You know what I mean? Like they earn that sheep by the virtue of who they are. I'm not, I'm, I'm not about it, right? But David is on something different. David knows these are my father's sheep, and every one of them matters, and not one of them is so insignificant that I'm willing to let it go to, to, to a predator, however fierce, however dangerous it is. 
And so in those moments when it would have been easy to just let it go, it would have been understandable. It's a lion. It's a bear. What were you going to do about it? It would have been understandable to let it go. When nobody was looking, there was no credit to be had. There was no guilt or, or shame to take in that moment. It would have been easier. David did the hard work with no reward when nobody was looking. He did the little things, the insignificant things, the things that didn't matter that much to anybody else. But he knew that they mattered. And what he couldn't have known in that moment is that in doing those things, God was building something in him that would carry him through the most outrageous act of heroism anybody had ever seen to that point. That what God was working out in him in the quiet place in secret when nobody was around was going to carry him into the season where everybody was going to know about him. People sang songs about David from that point on. Joe Frazier is a championship boxer. And he said this. He said, champions aren't made in the ring. They're merely recognized there. That's the story of David. David wasn't made who he was on that field with Goliath. He showed who he was on that field with Goliath. God did something in his life in those quiet places, in those quiet moments when nobody else was watching that carried David through that moment, right? Taking care of those small things prepares you for the big things that God has in store for you because God has something big in store for you. Hopefully you don't have to fight a giant or a bear, but he has something for you. We believe that. God is the God of more. He wants you to live life to the fullest, and how you handle those small things is going to prepare you for whatever is next. And so the last thing we're going to talk about is this. It's kind of the opposite. How you handle small things can cost you. It can cost you. If you don't handle it well, it can have a negative impact on your life. If we believe and we can agree that handling small things well and consistently over time will ultimately lead you to success or in a positive direction, we can also agree that it's going to work the opposite way, that not handling the small things well, that ignoring the small things, that letting the insignificant things go over time is going to take you further and further away from what God wants for your life. It's going to take you further away from who you should be and where you should be. Think about it this way. If, so assuming that you're like you're in pretty decent standing in your life, like your life is okay right now. Nobody's life is perfect. It's all different levels of, you know, pretty good, not so good, kind of sucks, whatever it is. But assuming your life is okay right now, it'd be really hard to go from totally okay all the way to you totally ruined your life in one fell swoop, right? If I'm trying to get here, from here, I'm not like, I'm not a track athlete, right? Like, that's a lot. I'm not, I, that would be a big jump for me. Nobody goes zero to 100 like that, right? How do we do it? It'd be real hard for me to jump right there, but I can do this all day. Little steps, little steps. And then all of a sudden, I'm over here, and I, like, I didn't do anything. I don't feel like I ever did anything, right? That's how life works. What starts is like a really minor problem, a little annoyance, a little annoying habit you have turns into a crippling addiction. It turns into a full-blown affair. It turns into 
you not being a parent to your children anymore. It turns into you losing your job and your livelihood. Those little things build up into big things. And that can be a good thing. The little good things build up into something big that's good. The little bad things will also build up. You see, David, we just talked about, killed Goliath, but he didn't always do the right thing. Much later in his life, after everything goes down with Goliath, later on in his life, he becomes the king of, of the people that he was protecting. And so he's their king, and, and years later, his army goes off to battle, goes off to war, and David stays behind. The Bible says that it's a time or a season when kings would go out with their armies to war, and David stayed behind. So he stays behind uh, while his army is off at war, and uh, he goes up on his roof one evening to, to hang out, look around, just, just see what's good. So he's hanging out on his roof one evening, and he looks around, and he notices a woman bathing on her own roof. Uh, he's attracted to her. He has his servants go and, and, and see what, who she is, bring her back to his palace. He sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. Plot twist is this woman is married to his best friend, Uriah. And so... David, now knowing that, brings Uriah home from war because Uriah has substance of character. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He brings Uriah home from war. He tries to trick him into sleeping with his wife so that he'll think the baby is his and he'll cover it all up. But Uriah has that substance of character and the tricks don't work. So what David does is he has Uriah murdered on the battlefield in order to cover up what he did. And then he marries his wife and then they, you know, they, they, they try to hide it all. And this has a huge impact on his life, his family, his kids. Like his life never looks the same after this moment. It had far-reaching impact. Because what he did was a big thing. He slept with a woman that he wasn't married to that was married to somebody else and he got her pregnant and he killed her husband to cover it all up. That's a really big deal. That's a far cry from that boy who let God do work in his life so that he could slay the giant. But he didn't just do it. He didn't just end up there. He took little steps to put himself in that place. Kings were supposed to go to war with their armies, but he stayed behind. That's a little thing. That's not that big of a deal, we don't think, because the reality is David was a warrior. People used to sing in the streets that David had killed his tens of thousands. He was a warrior from the moment with Goliath all the way through his death, he had to fight, he had to run and hide in caves, and he did all kinds of stuff. If anybody deserved an off-season, if anybody deserved a staycation, it was David. But he was supposed to be at war with his army, and he wasn't. And while he was not at war with his army, and he knew that his army and most of the men in the city were gone, he went up on his roof to hang out in the evening, which is not that big of a deal, but you got to know this. At that time, people, uh, they didn't have bathrooms, right? We didn't have plumbing. They didn't have water heaters. And so people would put their baths on the top of their house and they would fill it with water early in the morning. And over the course of the day, that water would sit on top of their house and it would bake in the sun. And then by the end of the day, uh, people would go out to take their baths on their roof where they could get a little bit of privacy and the water would be as hot as it was going to get because it'd been baking in the sun all day. So knowing that, knowing that most of the men are gone out of the city and that anybody who's taking a bath is probably going to be a woman, and knowing that if they're taking a bath, they're going to be doing it right now because this is when people do that, he still goes out on his roof to hang out. It's a little suspect, 
but you could still argue that it's not that big of a deal. That's, that's fine. So he's out on his roof, looking around, wonder what he's going to see. He notices a woman bathing. He doesn't have to look. He doesn't have to keep staring. He can look away. He can go back inside, but he makes that little decision. Now, nah, I'm just going to keep staring. He lets his mind wander. He asks his servants to go find out about her. He asks them to bring her back. He just takes all these little steps. It's, it, it's really hard to go from zero to 100 in that situation, but it's nothing to go from zero to 10. 10 to 15, 15 to 25, you know what I mean? Take those little steps and he ends up in a place where he made the biggest, honestly, what ended up being probably the biggest mistake of his entire life. And this is the way that Satan will try to get us. It's his oldest trick. He's not gonna get you to go from zero to 100. He's not gonna get you to go from happily married to full-blown affair. He knows he can't, probably. And he knows he doesn't need to. He knows he can get you, if he can get you to take a little step that direction, if he can get you to have just a, a little bit of inappropriate conversation with somebody, if he can get you to just notice somebody that you shouldn't be noticing that much, somebody to, to, that you, you're thinking about somebody more than you ought to, that you're creeping on somebody's Instagram or whatever else more than you ought to, if he can get you to just do something so insignificant, so little, take one little step that direction, he knows he can probably get you to do it again. You give him a little bit of space, he's going to take a whole lot from you. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians. It says, and do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Because if you give him a little bit of ground, that's all he needs to work with. Because if he can get you to do a little bit, he can get you to do a little bit again. And a little more next time. And a little more next time. And before you realize it, you've gone so far away from the person that you want to be that you don't even recognize yourself, that your life looks different and who you are looks different. It's the oldest trick in Satan's playbook. Get you to take all these little steps away from God's truth, away from God's will for your life. And once you're here, his next trick is to convince you that you have to make one giant leap back, that you have to fix your whole life before you can go back and be loved by God again, that God can't love you where you're at. That God can't love you for the mistakes that you've made. That the things that you've done, the griminess in your life is too much for God. He's not going to deal with you. He doesn't want to deal with you. And that you have to clean it all up on your own before he'll love you again. And I want to tell you, if you hear nothing else from me today, this is what I want you to hear. That that is a lie from the pit of hell. That those little steps that you took away from what God wanted for you, those same little steps are going to take you back to him. You just have to switch directions. Just walk back that way. Take one good step back towards God and watch him go to work in your life. God does not need any room to work. We say that the devil don't need much room to work with. God needs even less. He needs a little bit of moment. You got to turn in his direction and he's ready to step into your life. You won't clean up your whole life, but he will. You won't break your own addiction, but he will. You won't step out of depression and anxiety and suicidal tendencies, but he will bring you out of it. You won't fix your marriage, but he will. You have to give him a little bit. Take a little step in that direction. Delete that app off of your phone. Delete that number out of your phone. Stop going to that part of the gym because you don't stretch anyway. <laughs> Stop talking to that person. Let your spouse be right 
for once. Assume your kid is telling the truth. Do a little thing. Move yourself toward God and let him take over and do the rest. So if we can all stand to our feet right now, we're going to bow our heads, we're going to close our eyes. And the reason we do that is not because we have pickpockets who are going to come and take your money or your phone or any of that. It's just because we want to create this moment right now that is just between you and God, that there's nobody looking around, that there's, there, there's nobody focused on you, you're just you focusing on this moment with the Lord. Because these little things are so important because God loves the insignificant things. God is pleased by the simple things. And thank God that that's true because sometimes I feel like that's all I have to give him. I feel like I don't have anything of value to give to the Lord a lot of times. And that's okay because the Bible tells us another story in the book of Mark in chapter 12 that Jesus and his disciples are, are in the synagogue and the church and they're watching people come and give their offerings. And there's all these wealthy people coming in and giving giant sums of money, the type of money that builds new additions on the churches and pays people salaries and does the big heavy lifting monetarily, right? People are coming in and giving all this money. And then this woman comes in, kind of mild and meek, probably not dressed too well. And she, she throws in a couple coins that were wor almost worthless. They're worth a couple cents. She throws it in, she leaves. Jesus calls his disciples to him and he says, this woman right here who just did that, has given more than anybody else has given today. She's done more for the kingdom of God than anybody else has done. Because where, their gave, where they gave from their wealth, she gave everything that she had to give. God is not concerned with the size of your offering. God isn't concerned with the size of the gift that you give him. Whether you turn your whole life around or you take one step towards him, he wants your heart. He doesn't need your things. He doesn't, why we don't, hit on tithing a whole lot here because if, if God can have your heart your tithe is going to follow if God can have your heart you're going to want to serve your time is going to follow we want you to come and to meet Lord and for, the, for, for you to give him your heart because that's what he's after and so in this moment I want you to remember that God does not need much room to work with but he needs a little bit from you what he needs from you is an invitation. He needs a yes. The Bible says that God stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And if you answer, if you open that door, he will step into your life and he will make you a new creation. The Bible says that the old is dead and gone and the new has come. That can be you. There's nothing you've ever done. There's no one you've ever spoken with or done anything to. There is no place you've ever been that can disqualify you, that can remove you from the love of God, all you have to do is receive him and let him change you. And so in this moment, I'm gonna make, we're going to make that super easy for you. You don't have to come to the front. You don't have to do a song and a dance. You don't have to do a class. You don't have to pay an outrageous amount of money uh, to, to be absolved of your sins. You don't have to go sit in a box with somebody and tell them everything you ever did. You have to receive Jesus in this moment. I'm going to make it easy for you. Here in a second, I'm going to have you just stick your hand straight in the air. And that's just the one moment of, of courage and boldness to step out of your comfort zone, to step into a relationship with Jesus, to say, God, you can have this moment 
You can have my life. You can have my heart. God, I want you to do that work in me. I want you to change who I am. I want you to help me to be what you call me to be. I want to live life to the fullest. And so if that's you in this place, I want to give you this opportunity right now. Would you just stick your hand in the air so that we know we can pray for you and we can pray with you. And at Montgomeryville as well. I see your hand here. I see your hand over here. Amen. I see your hand over there. Amen, y'all. The reason that we clap, the reason that we clap is because Bible says that all of heaven, all of heaven stops what they're doing and they rejoice when one person comes home to find the Lord. And when one person comes home to find the Lord in this place, there is nothing so important that we're doing, nothing so important that we're thinking about that we won't stop and celebrate that as well. So when we're clapping, we're not adding a number to our cult, we're not buying more Kool-Aid, we are celebrating with heaven people who are coming to know Jesus. And so in this moment right now, would you guys pray with me real quick? Say this. Say, Jesus, thank you for everything that you have done today. Thank you for this moment in my life where I can turn it over to you. God, I am not enough, but I know I don't need to be. You make me enough. You give me value. And God, I thank you for that. Now, as we keep praying, Lord, thank you for just moving in this place today. God, we pray that, that, that your, your word would be what changes people's hearts, God, that, that it wouldn't, it's not lights, it's not fun music, it's not funny jokes or none of that. Lord, it's just your word, your truth resonating and moving in people's hearts, God. We thank you for everything that you've done in this place and at Montgomeryville, God. We pray that uh, just that your will is being done, God. We pray that, that you would receive this day just as an offering to you, Lord. We thank you for who you are and who you've made us to be. And it's in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to our podcast. If you decided to give your life to Jesus after hearing this message or want to learn more about how you can join us in person, visit jrny.church for more resources or to find a location near you. Have a great rest of your day.